Once you get into Matthew chapter 12, there is this interesting new season of Jesus' ministry that you start diving into. The first year you might call a period of obscurity, Jesus ministering in, in a relative anonymity. As his following develops, we transition to a second year of ministry, which you could call a period of popularity. Massive crowds are following after Jesus. Incredible works are being performed. Jesus is really at kind of the zenith of his ministry. And then that segues really into a period of, of growing opposition that culminates with a betrayal and a denial and a crucifixion and a resurrection. We are in this second period ministry transitioning to the third. And we see in Matthew 12 this growing opposition brought about by the religious establishment. A group of political men with a religious bent known as the Pharisees. These men despised Jesus. They had a lot of different motivations for their animosity towards the Lord. Some of it was jealousy, envy. Other was purely the fact that Jesus was a, a threat to their power, a threat to their influence. It can also be noted that Jesus picked on the basis of their own morality, of their own moral standing. These men thought that they weren't in need of salvation. And when you think of it, statements that Jesus would make, statements like, well, those that are well have no need of a physician, but those that are sick. Jesus pointing out that he came to minister to the lost, to minister to the outcast, to minister to the sinner, but in kind of a sleight of hand, he's also making fun of them. You guys are well, I forgot about that. You, you, don't, you don't have a need of a savior. You've wrapped yourself up in this false sense of moral standing. Now, there was a problem that the Pharisees had when it came to attacking Jesus, and that was the obvious manifestations of power, his ability to, to perform the miraculous, to heal the blind, to cause the lame to walk, to raise even the dead. Most notably, Jesus is a power to cast out demons. Not just the normal run-of-the-mill demons, but, but those in which the exorcists of the day were unable Men that were not just possessed, but as a result of their possession, were blind and mute. Jesus demonstrating incredible power. And one of the excuses, one of the things that they came up with was, well, he's casting out demons by the power of Satan himself. And in chapter 12, Jesus addresses this criticism, this accusation. He points out just the silliness of it. A house divided against itself can't stand. If I was of Satan, why would I be casting out demons? That doesn't even make sense. And yet it was their best attempt to explain the obvious supernatural. Now in the course of this dialogue, Jesus, he also begins to say some pretty serious things. In fact, getting a running head start back in verse 31, Jesus, after laying down the gauntlet, he who is not with me is against me. He says in verse 31, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, which is an encouraging thing. But, Jesus adds, the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Again, Jesus pointing out the silliness of, of accusing him of casting out demons by the power of Satan. He's already noted that he's casting out demons by the power of the Spirit of God which should have been an indicator that the, the kingdom of God was present 
And yet they're accusing him of, of something that was blasphemous. Making the accusation of Jesus that he's empowered by Satan. That's crazy. And Jesus provides them a warning. You guys are in danger of committing an unpardonable sin. Now we noted last Sunday, and I don't want to go too deep into this, that in a simple explanation of what we call the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, God the Father had revealed himself in Revelation to the people of God, the children of Israel, and they had rejected the Father. And now here's the Son, God incarnate. God became flesh and dwelling amongst the people, and they were rejecting him. And then Jesus warns them that if you reject the Holy Spirit, again poured out on the church during the day of Pentecost, there's nothing left. You know, the Godhead exists within this triune nature, Father, Son, and Spirit. You've rejected the Father. You're in the process of rejecting the Son. But I warn you, if you reject the Spirit, you don't come back from that. Now, as noted, sometimes this particular idea gets twisted and leads people into this notion, a false notion, I would even say a satanic notion, that they are beyond redemption. That they have done something in their life in the past, or they've said something that has, that has caused them to become an anathema. That they're beyond saving. They are beyond the reach of God. Jesus, though, he says, again, look at it, verse 31. I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. You see, no one is beyond the forgiveness of God, except those who reject the forgiveness of God. You see, there's no one alive, no one in this room, no one watching online, that has committed as of yet blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And yet there is not one resident of hell who hasn't committed such blasphemy, who have rejected God's gift of salvation, rejected Jesus' work on the cross. And so he provides this warning. You guys are, not only are you against me, but you are on the wrong track. You've missed it. Verse 33 Jesus continuing, again, this dialogue, he says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. Jesus, it's such an eloquent way of making complex spiritual themes simple. Simple enough for us to understand. And in fact, Jesus just points to a basic rule of nature to point out a spiritual truth. In much the same way that you can identify the nature of a tree by the fruit that it yields, the fruit that it produces, the same you can identify a person by the things that are manifesting or being yielded from their life. Now, you should note that a tree, a tree doesn't fight against its own nature. It is what the tree is that determines the fruit that it produces. You don't have an apple tree that produces cherries or a cherry tree that produces bananas. The nature of the tree produces, yields the type of fruit that exists. And this is just a natural idea. It's a natural concept. It's something that's evident, self-evident, just within the natural world. But Jesus is pointing out that, that you can identify the heart of a person, what's happening inside of a person, by what's being yielded from that life. Now, the application is kind of twofold. In context, Jesus is pointing to them. He's saying, you guys, if you really want to know where you stand, you should really look at what's being produced from this warped sense of religiosity that you've gotten yourselves wrapped into, this workspace moralism, 
I mean, you're in the process of rejecting the very Messiah God has sent to save you. Look at what's being produced. It should reveal something about your heart. But not only that, you're accusing me of operating under the power of Satan. Well, let's check that for a moment. Look at my life. Look at what's being yielded. Look at what's being produced. If you want to know about Jesus, again, the old saying that actions speak louder than words. Now, Jesus' words are powerful enough, but you look at his life. And what conclusion can you reach? The love and the grace and the mercy. Jesus is healing people, ministering to people, changing lives. He's saying a tree is known by its fruit. You're, you're accusing me of doing something in the power of Satan, but that's not even consistent with the natural world. Again, you should check yourself. I should also point out, and again, kind of using this particular verse a bit more as a springboard. In regards to the development of our spiritual lives, you know, Jesus would, would, would say in another passage, you know, abide in me and I in you, you know, abide in the vine, you know, as a grape abides in the vine. And Jesus speaking to the essence of, of our growth. We talk about fruit. It's kind of a Christian phrase of, of discussing works, the things manifesting from our lives, not just by word, but also by deed, the things that are, are being yielded, the things people come in contact with, the things that people see. And the goal of godliness is to demonstrate a godly life. The, the goal is for us to become more and more like Jesus, for our lives to reflect more and more of the Son, the Son of Christ, the Son of the Lord, you know, that we're to reflect Jesus. Now, how does that happen? Well, again, this is something that should be natural. You never walk by a vine and see a grape struggling to be a grape. Now, what's the goal of the grape? It's to hang out in the vine. It's to abide. It's to be connected, but then to absorb all of its nourishment and sustenance from the vine. A grape doesn't produce itself. It is produced. And in much the same way, in our lives, in our walks with the Lord, how do we become more like Jesus, 10 steps to obey, rules to abide by, or a person to hang out with. A tree is known by its fruit. We want to have good fruit. As a result, we need to hang out with Jesus. Verse 34, Jesus then transitions. He says, brood of vipers. How can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good things. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Brood of vipers. Never accuse Jesus of being seeker-friendly. I mean, Jesus, you got to understand the loaded language that he's using. Brood of vipers. Now, he's saying this to the religious leaders of the day, the religious establishment, the moralists, the Christian right, so to speak. Brood of vipers. Now, a brood, not really a term that we use a lot. I have a brood. Their names are Quincy, Theodore, and Mabel. A brood. Your kids, your offspring, your brood. 
When Jesus says brood of vipers, again, to the religious leaders, invoking the terminology of viper, that's got a lot of Old Testament connection to it, symbolism behind it. Again, this whole story took a tragic turn when Satan, Lucifer, came as a serpent and lied to Eve, who took of the fruit and gave to Adam. The curse of Genesis 3. We see Satan described often throughout the Old Testament as the dragon of old, the great serpent of old. When Jesus calls him a brood or children of vipers, he's saying, you're saying I'm operating in the power and the authority of Satan. You are the children of Satan. You brood of vipers. I mean, this was scandalous. This was not making friends. This was not a, a, an olive branch to the religious leaders. This was a declaration of war. And he says it definitively. You guys are a brood of vipers. And he points out that the things that are manifesting from their lives are revealing their evil nature. And then he adds, he says in verse 36, but I say to you that for every idle word, worthless word, fruitless word, men may speak, they will give an account of it on the day of judgment. Again, Jesus carrying forth the seriousness of what they were doing, the weight in which the accusations they were levying, and the results ultimately, not just the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, but the rejection of Jesus, that you will give an account on the day of judgment. Now you read about the idle word, a fruitless word. I don't know, growing up in church, in children's ministry, a passage like this was kind of a go-to, you know, as a good rebuke of saying stupid things. You know, for every idle word, you're going to give an account on the day of judgment. That's a truth. But we have to define the day of judgment. And really, there are two days of judgment. First and foremost, there's what's known as the great white throne judgment at the end, before we enter eternity. This is a judgment of the wicked. This results in hell. This is when a person's words and their actions and their deeds are weighed in the context of the rejection of Jesus. This judgment begins with the declaration, depart from me, for I don't know you. We don't have a relationship. And then the weight of punishment gets carried forth based upon the, the life a person has lived. Yes, I, I do believe the Bible presents the notion that there are varying degrees of eternal punishment. But it's all hell. <laughs> it's all still hell. And Jesus says there is a day of judgment, and on that day of judgment, for those that have rejected me, there will be a weighing. There will be a measuring. That's heavy. I mean, that's heavy for, for all of us to think that every word, every thought, every deed will be measured on the day of judgment. Now, if you're theologically savvy at all, you might reach the notion of thinking, well, wait a second. I won't be at such a judgment. I won't be at the great white throne judgment because I have accepted Jesus and all of my sins have been forgiven. That great promise, therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. I've accepted that offer, what Jesus uh, presented. I, all my sin, all my blasphemy, it's all been forgiven. Past, present, and future. My idle words won't be held against me. In fact, sometimes this leads certain Christians into what I call a gospel distortion, the notion that yes, I'm saved by grace and I abide in grace so I can do whatever I want. And I can say what I want because it's already been forgiven. 
Yes and no. First, again, for the believer, the judgment in question, the day of judgment, is not the great white throne. But you should note that you do have a day of judgment. For the Christian, their day of judgment was when Jesus bore the sins of the world on a cross at Calvary. That was a day of judgment. Not when Jesus was judged for his sin, but when your sin was judged for you on behalf of you. Two judgments. The day of judgment can be at the end when you stand and receive judgment on your own merit. Or you can accept a day of judgment that has already happened upon which Jesus bore your sins, took upon himself your sins, was judged for your evil works and for your idle words. And it's in light of that that we take a step back and say, this is not grace so I can do whatever I want. It's, it's Yes, it's grace, and there's no strings attached. But if I really understand that every deed, every wickedness, every sin that I commit was paid for and judged by Jesus, man, I really don't want to commit anymore. And so when we say something stupid to our wife or we lash out at our kids, man, the other night, I got to tell you, Mabel's gotten into this routine. I love it. I'm not complaining. Where even if I've said goodnight after Jessica does her routine and she's in bed, I need to come up and say goodnight again and do prayers. And uh, after a few months where I couldn't go up the stairs, I, I relish every moment. Well, we got into this thing where she likes me to try to sneak up on her. And so Jess is up. Now, I'm, one thing I'm not is very nimble <laughs> at the moment. I, I'm, not a, I'm not much of a ninja. I'd be the world's worst ninja. My karate chops have, have no power whatsoever. But I'm, you know, Jess is up there. They're singing their songs and and I'm like, all right, I'm going to sneak up. So, so I go up the stairs. I, I go across the hallway. I kind of look in, and they're singing, and, and the lights are off. And I'm like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get across right to the edge of the bed. And so when she wasn't looking, I, I worked my way across the room, and I dived down as low as I could. She has this play castle at the edge of her bed. I didn't see it. And so I, in the dark, go down, and when I, de I mean, I, I thought I gouged my eye out. I mean, forehead, I hit the thing, and like Jessica flips on the light, and, and Mabel's like, and I just reactively just slap the thing out of the way, and I'm like, my eye, and, and Jess was like, your daughter's watching you right now. And I, you know, with one eye, looking at Mabel, I'm like, oh no. I just did something stupid. I lashed out in anger. I kept my mouth shut, which I felt good about. But then I remembered that Jesus knows our thoughts. And I was like, well, he's got me there too. And it's in those moments that we do something stupid. We, we act a fool. Now, we can say, oh, well, it's okay. Saved by grace. Or we can say, oh, man. It's another one Jesus died for. See the motivation change? Like, grace doesn't give me a license to do whatever I want to do. In fact, if, if you think that grace gives you the license to do whatever you want to do, you don't really understand grace. 
For grace empowers me to try to be something better, to be more like Jesus. So when I mess up and I bang my head and I say what I shouldn't and I lash out, when I say an idle word, and sometimes that demonstrates something wrong within me and I gotta check that, I go back to the cross and like that was my day of judgment. That was the day it was judged. And what a heavy thought, what a heavy reminder. Jesus says, verse 37, for by your words you'll be justified and by your words you'll be condemned. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered and they said, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. This word sign, it's an interesting, it's an interesting word. It, it can indicate a miracle. You know, hey, we want you to, to do a miracle. We want to see some sign, who you are and your power. But the problem with that simple interpretation is Jesus has just been doing miracle after miracle after, like, what more do you want me to do? You know, I've been, I've been, <laughs> have you not been paying attention? I mean, you just brought a man with a withered hand in the synagogue, and I made the hand come whole. And if you rewind from there, like, I raised a guy, you know, a, a, a little girl from the dead. You know, I've healed lepers. That, that's kind of a new thing. Hadn't seen that one before. Like, if it's just a work, you see, the word sign in its original language, it can be token or marker. The, the idea of a token in, in Roman culture is it was, it was not just a, a, a sign or an identifier, but it, it, it revealed the identity of the person is kind of the idea. And they're, they're like, okay, so if you're not operating in the power of Satan and you claim to be operating by the power of the Holy Spirit and the authority of God, well, then give us a sign to indicate that, that proves that, to show that. Now, we'll, we'll actually see a, a really interesting sign not the sign, but a sign, uh, in a few chapters when Jesus takes Peter, James, and John with him on the mount, we call it the Mount of Transfiguration, and Jesus, uh, before them, meets with Moses and Elijah, and he's transfigured. His, his, his humanity is peeled away to reveal his divinity. That, that is an indicator, a marker, a sign, a token. But Jesus answers, and he said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Indeed a greater than Solomon is here. So they want a sign. Give us a proof. Now Jesus initially here he rebukes their desire for such a thing. But then he actually answers their question. He says, okay, you want a sign, you want a token, you want a marker, an indicator. The evidence that I am who I say that I am. All right. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights 
and the heart of the earth. Now, a couple things we should note uh, about this. First, there is a, there a kind of a move within Christianity, a move that most of you are probably not a part, but in case that you are, that try to allegorize the story of Jonah to the point that, you know, Jonah, they present Jonah as being nothing more than kind of a, a children's tale, something told, that is not literal, actual history. That Jonah wasn't actually a person and that he wasn't thrown into the water and swallowed up by a great fish and spit up on the land. That this was a, a, a children's story that was told at night to, to, to prove different points. Shouldn't be taken as historical or literal. I mean, come on. You want me to believe that Jonah was thrown into the water, swallowed by a great fish, and survived that? Well, for starters, Jesus apparently believed it was real because he, he is actually connecting what he's going to do with what Jonah did, what happened to Jonah. So if you have a problem with reading this as historical or literal, you have a problem with Jesus' interpretation of the passage itself. Now, not to get into a tangent, but I do point out the idea of a great fish. Note that neither in the, 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 the actual story of Jonah or in this reiteration of it given by Jesus, are we told that Jonah was swallowed by a whale. To be swallowed by a whale would be very difficult to survive, just saying. And yet that is neither the language used in the Hebrew text or reiterated here in the Greek by Jesus. Instead, it's just a great fish. In fact, I think it's not outside of the realm of possibility that this was not just a great fish, but a unique fish. A fish created during the six days, created for the intention of swallowing Jonah the moment he hit the water. That this was a fish that isn't widely known or populated, but that Jesus created a fish, that God created a fish to serve a very specific function at a specific time. And that when Jonah hit the water, the fish swallowed him, and he was able to indeed live for three days and three nights. Now, according to Jonah's own language, the experience was not very grand. This wasn't a fish that was a five-star motel. In fact, he was still bleached, bleached white by the stomach juices. It was hot. It was so bad, he thought he's in hell. Which you could kind of picture being swallowed by a great fish. Jesus seems to see this as being literal. So now the connection. Jonah, if you remember the story. Jonah is this prophet ministering during a period of, of great conflict in the northern kingdom of Israel. The Assyrian Empire is on the march, they're on the rise. God would ultimately use the Assyrians to destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. Jonah lived in the area and was very familiar with the Assyrians and many of their, their invasions into the land where they would torment people. Jonah hated the Assyrians and he had cause. Like there was justification for his prejudice. This was a wicked group of people, terrible group of people. The kind of atrocities that they would commit, brutal stuff. And yet God comes to Jonah and says, Jonah, I want you to go to their capital city, Nineveh. I have a message for them. Now Jonah so understands the nature and heart of God that he's like, I know what you're going to do. You're going to give them a chance to repent. And because you're so good, they'll probably do it and you'll forgive them. And I don't like that. I don't want to be a part of it. So you're sending me to Nineveh because you want to forgive them. But I don't want that forgiveness to be extended. So you know what? Buck, I'm going to go the other way. 
So he goes down to Joppa, he boards a boat, and he has a Tarshish, the opposite direction across the Mediterranean. Now, Jonah's down in the belly of, of the boat, and a great tempest, a storm rises up to the point that, you know, the sailors are throwing stuff off the ship. They're convinced they're going to go down. In fact, this was such a storm that even these pagan sailors have this internal notion that this is some divine intervention. This is some type of judgment. Again, make a long story short, Jonah comes up, confirms their suspicions. He's like, guys, you're all going to die because of me. This storm is because of me. It's because I'm disobeying God. It's because I'm going the opposite direction. And the only way that you're going to be saved from the judgment of God is to throw me overboard. And they're like, we're not going to do that. Well, the storm gets worse. And finally, they capitulate. Like, well, we're all going to die. If you want to take one for the team, go, bud. So they throw him overboard. So there's the judgment of God. Everyone would be destroyed. Jonah goes into the water to save the innocent. And he gets swallowed up. Three, three days, three nights later, he gets spit back up on land. He walks to Nineveh. He walks into town and says, 40 days, you're all going to die. There's your message. Then he goes up on a hill under a, a tree, and he's gonna, just waiting. wants to see the fire and brimstone. And then we're actually given the record of probably the largest single conversion in the history of the, of the world. We're told that all of Nineveh repented. And they, they donned sackcloth and ashes, just outward sign of repentance. They're so repentant, not only do they don sackcloth and ashes, they take the cattle, and they put sackcloth and throw ashes on the cattle. I mean, this incredible demonstration, and Jonah's ticked off about it. God would save them. So Jesus points to this, this Old Testament story as a sign, as an illustration of, what, of, of the sign that would indicate who he was. Now Jesus, in similar fashion, was on the boat of humanity, a boat going down, the judgment of God, and Jesus decided to be thrown overboard to take the judgment upon himself. And he was crucified. And then he disappeared, just like Jonah under the waters. He disappeared for three days, three nights. What's the sign? The sign is his resurrection. Okay, guys, you want a sign that I'm the son of God, that I am who I said I am, that I'm not operating in the power of Satan, but the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, I'll give you a, you're an evil and adulterous generation, but I'll give you a sign. Something that is the token, the marker, the main identifier. I will take the judgment of the world upon myself. I'll disappear for three days and three nights, and then I'll rise as Jonah rose. And that'll be the indicator, which is quite bold. You know what makes it really bold? Is no one in the history of the planet had ever done that before. And no one's done it since. I mean, Jesus, Jesus had the confidence, and I would even say, kind of the audacity. To be like, you really want to know I'm who I say I am? This is what's going to happen. I'm going to die. And three days later, I'm going to come back to life. Not to be independently raised from the dead like Jesus did Lazarus, but to rise himself. You know, no other prophet globally historically, has ever had the, the guts to make such a claim. It's not as though Muhammad had the, the, 
the brashness to tell his followers, guys, I'm going to die. Three days later, I'm going to be resurrected. In fact, you can go, Muhammad's still dead. Buddha, still dead. Joseph Smith, still crazy and dead. You go through all, I mean, nobody, Confucius. Jesus said, you want a sign? You want a marker? You want an indicator? I'm going to die, and three days later, I'm going to be raised from the dead. And you can look no farther than that, because I'm the only one to ever do it, or to do it. Then he points in verses 41 and 42, he gives two illustrations. He says, the men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment of this generation and condemn it. And why? Well, they repented at Jonah, but Jesus is pointing to himself, one greater than Jonah is here. And then he points to the the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, who we're told came to visit Solomon to see the greatness of Israel. And she responded to the preaching of Solomon. And yet Jesus is pointing, she'll stand up in judgment because she responded to Solomon, but a son of David greater than even Solomon is here, pointing to himself. I should note that that this idea does dispel the the myth of of reincarnation. Because Jesus is pointing to two people, a, a group and an individual, that were clearly dead when he makes this statement. And yet, are they really dead? No, because Jesus predicts that a future point they will stand in judgment. That the, the men of Nineveh are like, you had Jesus. We had this prophet that wanted us to die. And through a pity party when we, when we repented, you've got Jesus. And the, the, the queen of Sheba is like, I went to Solomon. The Hugh Hefner of the day. The man was nuts. And yet I saw the glory and I responded to the preaching and I accepted the God of Israel. You had Jesus. For us, we had the resurrection of Jesus. We have the evidence of the token, of the marker, to stand in judgment and condemn it. Verse 43, I'm determined to get through the chapter. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So shall it be with this wicked generation. You know, this is one of those passages that teaching verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible really gets you. <laughs> because of, of all the passages, it would be really convenient to, to skip over. You're not going to hear a lot of topical messages on those particular verses. What a trippy notion, trippy implication. What is Jesus saying here? Again, we can't skip over it or avoid it. An unclean spirit. Now, in its basic understanding, Jesus is saying clearly, an unclean spirit goes out of a man, presumably is cast out of the man, exercised out of the man. And the man cleans up his life, puts it in order. He's been liberated from the possession. He gets his life straightened out. Again, Jesus describes it's swept, it's put in order. 
And the demon goes out and is trying to find some other host in which to live in. Again, going back to earlier studies on demon possession. There's a difference between a fallen angel and a demon. It would seem demons different than fallen angels long for some type of physical embodiment. Which is why when Jesus casts out the demons from the, man, the, men, the men, the demons want to be cast out into the pig of swine. But the capacity of the swine can't handle the possession, so they run down the steep embankment. But they, they, they need some type of dwelling. So this demon gets cast out. The man's life has been liberated. It's been cleaned up. It's good. It's in order. The demon's out there looking for something else to abide in, to an abode. Well, he, he falls short. So he's like, I wonder, I wonder what that guy's up to. So he comes back around, and he finds that this guy is still empty. Now he's been freed of his possession, but there hasn't been a replacement of anything. So he comes back and he's like, wow. I mean, this place was a dump the last time I was here. This is looking pretty good. Got some new spackle on the walls, fresh coat of paint, been cleaned out. Some new digs, new furniture. So he goes and he gets seven of his buddies. He's like, we can all hang out here. And so they go and they repossess the man, but now the possession is greater the second time than the first time. So now the man's worse off. Now, Jesus is, 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 this is what he's saying, happens within the spiritual realm. The implication, I would say, in a very literal sense, is that anytime you're freed of, of, of a possession, you must, you must be possessed. What do I mean by that? We're told that why are we not possessed as believers in Christ? Well, we're told that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. You do realize that if you're a Christian, you absolutely believe in spiritual possession? In fact, that's kind of the essence of your regeneration. What, what do you claim? You claim that like, I came to the cross of Christ, I repented of my sins, I accepted Jesus' Jesus's gift of salvation, and then he took out of me this dead heart and he replaced it with his spirit. He filled me with his spirit. That's possession. Want to sound crazy or not, but a believer says, I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. I have the Spirit of God dwelling in me. And the same way that the Shekinah glory of God dwelt in, the, in the, the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, and later the temple, the presence of God filling, resting upon the Ark of the Covenant, I am now the temple of the living God because the glory of God dwells within me. And what Jesus is saying here is if you're liberated from a possession, if your demon's cast out, if you're freed from something, you, it needs to be re replaced. And if it's not, you're still susceptible to a greater sin, a greater evil, a greater thing. You know, the law often presents, I think, a, an, an example of this. That, that sometimes people, they, they find religion. You know, they reject sin they turn from their life in the world, and then their whole focus becomes their, their own morality. Well, I do this, and I do that, and, and I sacrifice this, and I sacrifice that. They really clean up the house pretty well. But they haven't been filled with the Spirit of God. And often it leads to a greater, a greater evil. For example, I've known a lot, of, a lot of people. They might have rejected their life of sin, but they've fallen and accepted a trap of of religiosity and hypocrisy. You know the one, the one sin that Jesus says is like the devil? 
pride. And there's so many people that have based their entire relationship with God, their entire, their moral, on their own pride. But according to God, that would be worse than the world, the life in sin. Because now you're more like Satan. Great job. What's worse, he goes out, takes seven other spirits that are more wicked. So shall it be with this wicked generation. It may also be just to throw it out there that Jesus is speaking in a bit of a prophetic sense that they're rejecting Jesus. They're rejecting him. And as a result of their, they had a Messiah, but then there'll be another one that they will accept. It'll be later the Antichrist. That will be much worse. This progression of sin, this progression into wickedness. Well, while he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside seeking to speak with him. I, I, should, I should point out for anyone watching that believes in the perpetual virginity of Mary, um, you have a problem here. Because these are Jesus, his mother, his brothers. Now, should note they're half-brothers. Same baby mama, different daddy. But he has brothers, his mother. They want to speak with Jesus. Now, in another passage, <clears throat> we're told, we're given the indication that they come to have a powwow in order to bring him home because they thought he'd, he'd become nuts. And let's, let's be real, Jesus will say some nutty things. Again, not super seeker friendly. Like th There will be a point that Jesus is like, all right, you want to know how this works? No one will enter the kingdom of God unless he eats my flesh and drinks my blood. And everyone's like, peace. I'm out of here. And a whole bunch of them leave. And Jesus turns to his disciples like, you guys going to go too? Like Jesus had no problems thinning the herd. You know, whittling it down. So Mary and, and, his, and his, they come and they're like, you've lost it. And not only that, you're, you're running across some pretty dangerous people that you just called a brood of vipers. Like we should tamper this down. An intervention is necessary, Jesus. Then one said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are, are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But Jesus answered and said to the one who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Now, don't take that in the sense that Jesus was somehow confused. In the sense that, that he didn't know, is that really Mary? Do I have a mother? No, no, no. He, he's kind of, he's playing on something. He's going to make a point here. For he stretched out his hand towards his disciples and he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus uses the occasion to kind of conclude the general thought process of, of this tit for tat with the, the Pharisees. He's making a distinction between himself and them. And he's making a distinction between them and his disciples. And he turns and he says, who's my mother and who my brother? You know what? And he points to them. You guys he says, he says, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Basically, you are my family. Now, what does it mean, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven? Because there will be the legalists that will then immediately point out to all of these things that we're supposed to be doing, 
And all of these things we're supposed to refrain from doing as the will of the Father. What is the will of the Father? Things for you to do or refrain from doing? Is that God's will? No. It can be the result of God's will, the manifestation of the fulfillment of God's will, but what, especially within the context of all that we've been looking at, what is the will of the Father for you? That you might know Jesus. That you might accept Jesus. That you might come into a relationship with Jesus. A relationship that not only saves you from past sin, liberates you from future sin, that changes you from the inside out. You know, the religious people of the day, the Pharisees, they were very much into what we might call reclamation. And you'll find a lot of people in Christianity today, they, they preach reclamation of sorts. That you were a mess. And now Jesus is cleaning you up. That you're a total fixer-upper. We've got a lot of shows that deal with fixer-uppers. They make you very depressed about your own house. Give you all ideas of things to do that you can't afford. I say, give your wife lots of ideas on things for you to do and can't afford. Reclamation. Is the gospel message a message of reclamation? And the answer is absolutely not. Again, Jesus is not, he's not trying to make you a better you. Jesus is wanting you to, to die so that he might live within you. It's regeneration, not reclamation. It's redemption. It's new life. See, Jesus isn't trying to clean up you. He's trying to just get you out of the way, fill you with his spirit, that you might be something new, something different, something special. Again, it's kind of like the Dr. Phil theology. Oprah theology. Here's a bunch of tips, Christian tips even, by which you can be a better, a better version of you, but that is not the gospel. The gospel message says you are irreparably broken. And I came to transform you into something you aren't. To make you completely new. Again, speaking back to the unclean spirit returning. It's not about cleaning oneself up. It's about becoming new. It's about being transformed. Not reclamation, but regeneration. He says, whoever does the will of, of my Father in heaven, whoever accepts me, whoever accepts that offer, that any sin and any blasphemy can be forgiven, whoever accepts what I want to do, then you're part of my family, man. You're my brother and you're my sister, you're my mother. We're one. Again, the idea Jesus is playing off of with invoking family connection. You know, it's, it's been said that there's, you know, nothing is deeper than blood. 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 I, I would disagree. I understand the idea. But there is one thing that runs deeper than blood. And that's spirit. And that's what Jesus is saying. Blood? Blood is not how I make a connection with family. It's spirit. So whoever accepts me, whoever accepts my offer, whoever accepts my salvation... Whoever accepts what I'm offering, man, you're part of my family. And we're one. 
So, Father, we thank you for that offer.